Jim Carr, welcome to Chewing It Over. What on earth makes you want to get involved in the MSK space? <laughs> um, well, I've uh, I've been involved in it for quite some time, but on a surgical side to it. And uh, I've seen a lot of patients on the operating table in the hands of orthopedic surgeons throughout my career. And uh, I always found myself wondering, what's the journey that a patient's been on like to get to that point? You know, you see metalwork going in, or you've seen a lot of cartilage procedures, things like that. But actually, thinking that's someone's parent, someone's son, someone's grandparent, what what happened? When how how did they feel about it? And and I guess that's it. I've always been intrigued about that side to it. I'm an active person myself. I like sport, and that links into it as well. I guess just you know the whole the whole thing of staying active. And and um, I'm fortunate. I've never had any injuries or problems myself msk wise but i've often wondered sort of that that pathway it's just an intriguing intriguing thing to me so i guess that's why i'm i've stuck it out to a point and why i why i'm here now that um yeah over the last few weeks getting to know you a little bit that intrigue is central to you then you're a bit of a problem solver it seems you're interested in in the industry but also interested in how might we solve these problems and it it really feels like you're seeing that in its broadest term and 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 where your role can sort of uh, fit within that can you tell us a little bit about your background then professionally yeah sure um so um i've been in medical industry sales and marketing for 20 years um so that's um I actually left school at 16 I I I and started in the workplace in the chemical industry without going into great detail on that but I did that for 7 years first in R&D so I was sort of doing part-time study chemistry degree um dropped out of it cuz it was polymer chemistry was really hard mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't feel like that environment was right for me so I ended up um in my early 20s going into um sales and marketing in the medical industry um and then sort of 20-year career in that, about 15 of it was orthopedics. Um, so started out working um, in joint replacement, um, sort of some of the larger companies like Smith & Nephew in the joint replacement side. Um, and I always sort of ended up gravitating towards smaller organisations and startups Um and I enjoyed that environment more. So I sort of bounced around a little bit before sort of settling in a, in a few roles in uh, distribution, which was smaller setups. Um, some people might have heard of a company called Joint Operations, which the last eight years of that part of my career was with, with Joint Operations as a startup. Um, so I was a senior member of that team, uh, driving the marketing strategy, basically. So having had all that experience of working in surgery, with orthopedic surgeons, um, supporting surgeries, selling the products, medical education, running cadaveric workshops, um, sort of give me a, a great base, a great understanding of 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 what you know, orthopedic surgeons need to do and what what they what they're doing. Um, the medical education stuff I've run in the last five six years when I was at Joint Operations was was really great, really great learning experience for me because you feel like you've got to know your stuff, obviously, to put on medical education in the first place. Um, but then, you know, getting the right people to lead that course for you and facilitating that, um, I really enjoyed that part of it as well. Um, and through that sort of stretch, it just becomes evident that in this industry, sales and marketing, it really is all education. And that's kind of where I've sort of centered myself to, I think, since then, is that it's it, it almost feels pointless 
if you don't have some way of offering education alongside your product, um, right. some sort, um, obviously the, the aim of the game is is still commercial, but you have to have you have to be able to explain it in a, a very clinical way, and the product has to stand up to that. Um, so yeah, so it, a pretty varied career really. That you know, at 22, 23, ended up just in a sales role in the medical industry, and it's developed from there. And and yeah. you that was with an orthopedic, surgical orthopedics. And how then did you um, end up? Because we've just said off air about how it being unusual for you to then move away from surgery. Sometimes it captures someone and then they stay in there um, in the main. Yeah. So yeah. so tell me a little about that the the more recent journey. Um, slightly, I won't say away from it because it's still within the sector. But just uh, you know, tell me about the evolution more recently. Yeah. So about a year ago, I didn't really know what the journey was going to be, to be honest. I, I had left joint operations for a number of sort of reasons. I think it was just time for me to look at some other options, um, uh, like say for a number of reasons. But I initially set myself up as a marketing consultant because I have a lot of contacts through doing that type of role, um, just in, in marketing and general sales and marketing. Um, so the idea of, of that was to continue collaborating with sort of other freelancers who do videography, who do graphic design, website design and build. And I still offer all of those things out um, as a consultant, but it's kind of working with uh, other people to to sort of support clinicians and businesses in the industry. And that was really um, what I was going to try and develop. Um, that's a, a year, year and a half ago I started that. Um but I did miss the interaction with clinicians. Um, I did miss the the more hands-on with with product. I did sort of miss that side to it. Um, that's what I've done for a long time and realized actually that's what I'm passionate about is the products that genuinely can can help people, I suppose. Um, so it, it sort of pulled me back in um to um sort of actually registering EOS Active as a a separate company away from the marketing consultancy, which is still sales and marketing, but it's more specific and it's it's given me that opportunity to actually develop um my own sort of brand in in back in the, in that in that sort of space. Um but it, it sort of so that's how I ended up coming out of the role I was in. Um I didn't want to go back into surgery. Um I think I enjoyed it a lot and I still do, but I viewed um i wanted to take a slightly different look i suppose at, at what what the, the, the patient you know they're, they're on the operating table seen a lot of that and i was just intrigued about that journey of what they do beforehand and how can you actually prevent them from getting there in the first place mm. and i think there's an awful lot not being done <laughs> to be honest about you to to, to, to get to gotcha. that point and I, and I, it, I think there's a lot of things sort of floating around out there, and there's a lot of products, and there's a lot of solutions, and there's a lot of this feels to me, and I'm still getting a grip with it. So many different options, but they don't feel like it's consistent of what's what's being offered to patients to stop progression of something like arthritis. Well, brilliant, because that's exactly where we will need to go with this conversation. You've been teaching me um, more recently bits about uh, hyaluronic acid and and the um especially the the 
within the context of which we have with injectable options in this in this country. It introduced me to Bilal recently. We did a podcast that, that others can listen to, which gets into the clinical weeds more than we will today. But when did you first come across that as, a, as an option? And, and how did that feel like it fit that gap that you're describing that, that could potentially uh, be more more preventative to them needing the major surgeries? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so um, injection therapies for OA is something I've been involved in um, for a number of years. Um, sort of PRP products, hyaluronic acid products, and the products I work with now, I had involvement with going back a few years um, when they were with um, another distributor I was working with. Um, and my thought process, I knew that product was going to be sort of come available as a, as, you know, how they're going to market in the UK going forward and um i guess my pitch to that to annika who who manufacture the hyaluronic acid products that i i work with um was that it's always kind of sat with a sales company that talked orthopedic surgeons and that definitely has a place but it 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 I think that it was missing a trick. And my my plan was always this actually sits more in a bit more of a well-being space, a bit more of a we need to keep people active. This product does that. Um, it's got great clinical heritage to it. Um, and that's really it's not it's not joint preservation. It's not that 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 gap between joint replacement and sort of joint preservation. It's even before that. And I think it was being missed in terms of positioning it in that space. There's a couple of other companies in that space who I think have kind of been unchallenged because there hasn't been the options, there hasn't been the education around it. Um, and like you said, like you alluded to the, the discussion with Bill Al um, last week, which was which was brilliant. Um, I don't think those that that level of discussion is 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 aired enough. Yeah, definitely not get, get, getting into the weeds on the, and scrutinizing the mechanism of effect as well as the pragmatic application of those of those yeah, drugs yeah. And, yeah. and agents. Um, could you give us a, get a bit of a clue then as to where you feel it fits at the moment in the MSK game? Then why is it that you feel that these these uh, these products are something that you'd like to to see proliferating and, and better, be better known? Yeah, so I, I, my my belief is 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 really about you know wanting to keep people active as long as possible because I think if you if you by time if you do end up on the operating table an orthopedic surgeon um, you'll know better than me Jack and most people listening to this will know better than me you know I don't have a physiotherapy background but your prehab is an incredibly important thing but it shouldn't just be considered the lead up to a procedure like you should almost view prehab as that's a lifestyle, right? If you're strong, if you're fit, if you're active, and when things go wrong and you need some sort of surgical intervention, you're going to be in the best place to recover better. Hmm. And if you're suffering with something like joint pain, you can't turn back the clock. You can't cure arthritis. You, you know, you can't, there is some regenerative um, injection therapies out there, but with something like hyaluronic acid, I think what it does is it is it allows patients to to improve their activity level, and and that in turn improves well being. It it gets you out. You know, you, you're missing your round of golf with your with your friends every week because of joint pain, or you can't go and play tennis or whatever. The the the, the well being impact that you know on that you put weight on, and I think it's just a vicious cycle of of mm. what happens outside of just the MSK issue. And I think that's a really interesting topic. And I think that's what 
these things can genuinely offer. It's quality of life um, and maintaining a quality of life um, for longer. Now, me and Bilal get into the into the weeds on injectables in much more detail than we're going to do here. But the context of which we're chatting is one of which we are increasingly seeing uh, evidence of chondrotoxicity of steroid and some lessons that need to be learned there, which we've taken a while to catch up at OA knee, but we learned um, and had to learn pretty quickly with tennis elbow, for example. Um, and then there's also the... Um, you know, non-medics aren't able to deliver PRP, whatever you might think of that, some celebrating it because it shouldn't exist, and then some um, frustrated that that option is 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 then not available to, to non-medics. And therefore, through the middle of that uh, exists um, a, a growing evidence base to suggest that, especially with the rightly right-timed right and, and, and selected patient, that hyaluronic acid is a sensible option. Again, though, in the context in the UK, of, of ever-growing orthopedic lists um, that mean that then access to surgeries that might be required, uh, might be indicated, are not going to be something that are done uh, pertinently and, and quickly. So in, in inside of that, tell us a little bit about what you have on the market at the moment and, and why that fits well in that, in the, and the timing seems right for this conversation. Yeah, sure. So, I work with Annika with within EOS Active. Um, Annika Therapeutics are a um, global joint preservation company, but their heritage is in production and manufacture of hyaluronic acid. Um, uh, with the world leader in in manufacture of hyaluronic acid for a number of different reasons. Um, so the the timing was right to work for, for me with that, with that sort of the right company to work for because it's not a me too. Because there's a lot of hyaluronic acids out there and. I didn't want to be involved in a bun fight of ours has got better data and this is better. And, you know, there had to be a genuine reason. So the the, the two main products that come along with that, um, firstly, sort of Monovisc, which is a pure hyaluronic acid product. There's a the, the, there's good reason, good clinical reason why that could potentially offer patients an uplift on on what they would get out of, of others around. And it's not a regenerative product, although it can stimulate the aim of the game is to stimulate synovia sites um, to produce endogenous HA again, which I think gets missed off. You know, the, these products do more than the oil change analogy. And, mm. you know, I shudder with the, the, you know, arthritis is just wear and tear argument and, and this is an oil change and it gives you a cushion. It kind of does that. But I think patients are smarter. I think the, the description of what it's doing can be elaborated. Um if you have the cycle of a way and you're breaking down cartilage, which releases enzymes, which attack synovia sites, which down-regulates HA production within a knee joint, for example. Monovisc is, is manufactured with a molecular weight, which targets sort of the binding affinity of synovia sites. So it will bind with a synovia site and get them kickstarted again, if you like, to produce HA again, which obviously in turn helps the joint. That's what you want. That's when it, when it was a healthy joint, it had a good flow of hyaluronic acid nourishing the joint. So that's what we're trying to do. It's not just going in there as a cushion. It'll have that effect. It'll have a lubricating effect. We know that that's the case. But if you get the right molecular weight at the right concentration, you can do a lot more with it. Um, so one of that's something you've taught me. That's something you've taught me a lot about recently um, as I've been studying more um what is the relevance of molecular weight and, and how is that affected by sort of the quality of, of, of results that you might get from inferior products? 
Yeah, yeah. So there was some um, data produced. Um, it's about 20 years ago from um, two people, Smith and Gosh, lab, lab testing. So what they did, really interesting, they took um, patients who had knee replacement, they took the synoviocytes into the lab and looked at what can stim- what, what types of hyaluronic acid are going to best stimulate the synoviocytes. Um, bear in mind, patients that had synovitis and led to knee replacement. And what they found was molecular weight plays a significant role. So if the molecular weight is too low, um, which is sort of too low, they found was below um, 500,000 Daltons. So half a million Daltons was too low. Um, then the, it just doesn't bind with the synoviocyte. It just doesn't get there. So it does nothing other than wash around in the joint, probably gives you a bit of lubrication. Um, if it's too high, above 4 million Daltons, then the molecules are too big. They just can't sit down onto the, you know, there's not enough space for them to land on the synoviocytes and affect in, in, in the most easiest way of describing it. It's called steric hindrance. Um, so they don't really work. So there's this sweet spot, which sort of has been targeted with the, the sort of development of Monovisc, um, that is um, a product which is around 2 million Dalton. So it's right in the middle of what Smith & Gosh noticed in, in their testing, um, which binds highly with a synoviocyte and stimulates um, their production of HA again. So that's that's the crux of it, really. You've also got other things going on where cushioning effect isn't just from um, hyaluronic acid. You've got products on the market which claim very, very high molecular weights because they want to give you a big cushion. But actually, it's hydrophilic. It'll it'll bind with any water molecules in the joint and that's going to give you a better cushion. You know, the, the binding with, with water in there, it's, there's a lot more to the process than just putting in a hyaluronic acid lubricating cushioning. There's a lot mm, going I think on. That's, I think there's the temptation because it's something that's seen as being non-biological in a way to some people yeah, some people yeah. consider it to be that that they they almost then think that this is just putting something in um that's gonna that's gonna sure up that joint um the one of the things that's been interesting for me to understand more is uh, and speaking to more colleagues that are experimenting is that there are people um trying to mix steroid with hyaluronic acid uh, for the obvious reason of it being that with the right profile of patient, they would want to try and calm down some of the inflammation, but also offer some replenishment and provoking the, the um, improvement in, re- in regeneration in a way, uh, preservation by increasing the uh, hyaluronic acid production in the knee. So they're wanting to mix that together. They're often, often doing that by literally shaking, shaking things in a, in a syringe um, of which, um, especially having watched some some videos and spoken to some colleagues, that it, it doesn't mix. Um, you've got a bit of a thing about that, saying it's like mixing old oil and water or balsamic vinegar and uh, olive yeah. oil in you, before you dip your bread. So talk me through why people are doing that, um, and then talk me through how you feel you've you've identified a solution to that. Yeah, yeah, good, good point, good question. Um, uh, so um, the re- the rationale for having steroid before or with hyaluronic acid is a good one. Um, hyaluronic acid um, will work better in a non-inflammatory environment. And the majority of time, patient will come in and see you, they'll have inflammation with um, a bit of knee away. So it, it makes sense to deal with it, with the inflammation with a steroid mixed with a hyaluronic acid. The problem, which you, which exactly you said, is they don't mix. So um, 
the problem with that, if you think about it, if you're putting two components in where you they don't mix, you put them maybe in the same syringe and shot that in, and you've got a, you'll have a bit of steroid here and a bit of HA there and a bit of steroid there and a bit of HA there. We don't know what that's done to the hyaluronic acid itself. You basically diluted it, um, so it's not what it was. You've created your own product, but I think the most important thing is the disbursement of the steroid within the joint. It, it won't have dispersed evenly. It can't have done. You can end up with your sort of 40 milligrams of Kenalog sort of all sat on a condyle potentially, or, you know, or just sort of two main globules of it around the joint. So it's not ideal. We, we, no one's, I haven't seen any data to show me that that's safe. I haven't sort of, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's a, it doesn't feel like the right way to go around it. Um, when you see the two components together. Um, so, yeah, in short, what Annika manufactured to look at that issue, because like I say, we know it works, hyaluronic acid will work better in a non-inflammatory environment because the inflammation in a joint will just downregulate and kill the hyaluronic acid. It doesn't, it doesn't perform as well. So they developed Singal. Um, Singal is um, micronized, components of steroid and monovisc so you've got the lead-in monovisc the world leading hyaluronic acid it's just not been promoted in the right spaces in the uk but worldwide it's the most injected ha for for joint pain so you have that mixed with steroid micronized so it it, it actually looks like calpol there's no separation it's sort of a cloudy solution that there will never be a separation the components are as one I think um, a, a really key point with that is um, it's classed as a medical device. Um, there's a few reasons why that is, but you, it's non-prescriptive because it's a medical device. I think one of the reasons for that is um, it, the steroid within Singal is also different. So you, if you take Kenlog, for example, if you're doing 40 milligrams or sometimes people put 80 milligrams of Kenlog in, that will definitely deal with inflammation. But it's overkill. It's a sledgehammer to crack a wall, not right. So Singal right. um, is triamcemolone hexacetonide, which is TH, different triamcemolone acetonide, which is Kenalog. It's a pediatric um, position steroid. It's a slower release steroid. So you don't get that impact on the chondral surface with TH, which is in Singal. Um you don't get the issue of it hitting the bloodstream quickly. Patients won't get sort of flushes or jitters from it. They won't feel the effect of it. It's kinder to the condyle surface because of the slower release. Um, but it, the potency is is five times as high as, as standard corticosteroids. So the, the strength and the potency of TH is certainly there. The data all says that it deals with inflammation in the first few days. Um but it's it's a kind of gentle acting steroid combined with the fact it will disperse evenly around the joint. Um, so I guess my message to people when I talk about Singal is the data is great, but we can argue about data because there isn't any data to show something like Ostinil plus Kenalog, for example. I, I, I don't know what that looks like. So it may well, Womack score may well look as good as Singal. I don't know. But the fact that this is an incredibly safe way of doing it so safe it's non-prescriptive um, and we do know it deals with the information very quickly, um, I think is a pretty strong message. And, and um, mm. you know, it's it, like I say, it's just a, 
it takes the risk factor out. And maybe even if you're doing it in two injections, it's it's one injection less. It reduces the risk of an infection and things like that. I just think it's um, it's a kind of sensible way to deal with inflammation and get a really trusted, good hyaluronic acid product to then do its job. Absolutely. No, it's been really interesting to learn more about it. And we're um, pleased to be able to bring you, uh, for those that haven't seen it yet, I forget the order of play for these podcasts, but the one with the, me and Bilal chatting about it has been something that's really helped to uh, open my eyes to that side of the market again in a, in a new context, a new healthcare environment that we're facing with growing waiting lists, as well as an evidence base that is pointing us you know, towards some innovation and away from some uh, quite dated practices, uh, including some complacency from me and my physio colleagues of, of hoping that rehab changed everything without in, in, any interventions uh, for anyone. Uh, was, was naive at best not that that was ever my position but i know that we've kind of all been ambitiously pursuing this sweet spot um, of weight management of rehab loading of 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 even slight you know sort of braces or devices if if even that um and so we we need to recognize that uh, it isn't just let's try this if it doesn't work let's pop a steroid in it i think there's been a bit of complacency yeah. to that and i think that the uh, recent nice guidance uh, um well the, the one before last that the kind of bred that complacency i think in us um that we need to grow out of and start to be a bit more particular of how we clinically reason the use of all our modalities yeah yeah absolutely but i think as a you know something like um single monovisc any injection therapy is never going to replace the work you you you, you like you guys do jack i mean it it's a it's a it's a supplement right it's it helps mm. the patient if you can if you can help rehab the patient a little bit quicker by giving them single it's a cost effective solution for 130 pounds is the cost of single it's it's a unique injection that that like you say if that if that just gets the patient moving forward a bit quicker and you're able to do the important stuff faster. I think that's a that makes sense to mm. me. I guess that that's yeah. that, that makes sense to me to help the patient along that rehab journey. Brilliant. Now tell folk a little bit about how they can find out more about you, the company, and and also if they want to uh, try these products for themselves. How do they do so? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, Jim Carr, you can search me up on LinkedIn. That would be great. Connect with me. Um, I put some stuff out on there. EOS Active also has a company page on LinkedIn. Um, the website is eosactive.co.uk. Um, so you can it'd be great to have a look um, on there and, and let me know your thoughts. You can contact us through that um, find out more about all the injection products. And, and then hopefully as things develop, you know, we want to um, develop our business in that space. So, so the injections are the, are the sort of the, the the core of what we're doing, but really keen to, to work with and hear from other physiotherapists, clinicians who you know, we've got ideas or thoughts or product ideas that we could maybe work together on as well. Superb. No, it's really interesting. Really been enjoying uh, getting to know what you guys are up to. Um, looking forward to seeing what our audience think of this and the conversation with Bilal. Uh, and we'll no doubt speak soon as we, as I say, I think we're, we're peas in the pod when it comes to solving problems in the industry. And I look forward to, to seeing what we come up with. All right. We'll yeah. speak soon, mate. That's great. Thanks, Jack. Cheers. Cheers.
Hi everyone, Jim here from the team. Just jumping in to say that we've added a sneak preview of our next podcast, which is session 104, entitled What and When Should We Inject into Osteoarthritic Knees with Bilal Barkatali. And it is absolutely sensational. So listen to this sneak preview and tune in on the first Sunday of December for the full episode. Delighted to be back on the Physio Matters mics in person, which is nice. This place has been a glorified Zoom studio for too long recently. Um, and so I'm pleased to be able to chat about hyaluronic acid. Uh, really interesting space at the moment because of the timing of news as to what things are doing at the various different joints, but particularly evidence emerging at the knee. So delighted to have you here, Bilal, to talk about that. Could you introduce yourself for the listeners first and foremost? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Bilal Barkatali. I'm a consultant specialist knee surgeon. I've been a consultant since 2014 and obviously trained for many years before that. And my specialist area is all of knee surgery with particular um, reference to joint preservation. Okay, so I guess that's the main focus of what we're going to be talking about today. I do other knee surgery as well, such as sports, ACL, patellofemoral work, osteotomy, etc. Osteotomy and realignment surgery is part of the joint preservation umbrella. Um, as well as injection therapy. And I guess we're going to be focusing on injection therapy and conservative measures and how we can preserve knees and avoid knee replacement surgery, which is a great passion of mine. And how did it become such a passion of yours within that space? So um, all knee surgeons are trained to do knee replacements as the baseline, a big operation that we do. And uh, the incidence of osteoarthritis and the severity and how it affects people, that's been increasing over the decades. And so the total knee replacement operation in itself um, has been around for a long time. We do a lot of it, but it's not without problems, okay? So the risk profile and sometimes the actual functional outcome at the end of it is not where we want it to be. So uh, in my opinion and in my training, in my experience, I only like doing that operation when it's going to work for that patient, okay? And so there's a, there's a correct time to do it when the knee is degenerate enough, you've got fixed flexion deformity, you've got reduced range of movement, you've got constant pain. In those situations, a total knee replacement operation is a great operation and will do wonders for that particular patient, get them back moving, doing the things they want to do. But there's a wrong time to do that operation. You can do it too early when you haven't got any of those parameters like fixed flexion deformity or constant pain. And so the human knee joint in my opinion, is far superior to a prosthesis that's placed to mimic that joint, okay? So if you can hold on to your own knee for as long as possible, for me, that's the best possible option. And so there are many strategies that we can employ uh, to try and hold on to it and keep the function and symptoms under control for as long as possible. What are your primary reasons for considering that superiority of the biological knee joint? So the, the primary reasons are the, the ligament balancing around the joint, okay? So if you, if you try and imagine uh, a knee joint, it's basically a, a long bone, a femur, resting on top of another long bone, the tibia, uh, with the soft tissues around the joint providing the balance throughout the range of movement, during walking, climbing and descending stairs, running, twisting and turning. How, do, how can you do all of those things whilst these two bones are resting on top of each other? It's all about the soft tissues and the ligaments, okay? And so the human knee joint is a very complex inter interplay of all those ligamentous arrangements and relationships. And that can't be mimicked successfully 
using a prosthesis. Okay, so on that basis, it's always better to hold on to your own knee for as long as possible. Okay, and so over the years, we've seen various different interventions, be that on a surgical level, on a rehab level, as well as then the in-betweens in when it comes to, say, um, injections or yep. medicines, uh, as well as then braces and beyond. Sure. Could you just give me an insight into how your... Um, sort of view of each of those things you don't have to go in turn but just, just yeah. a general sense over the years as to how things have evolved in your thinking and your practice so uh, i think we've come a long way okay i think that's the the first statement i like to make we've come a long way in the last 15 20 years in how we approach the degenerate knee okay so really what we're talking about is the de the degenerate knee and the way i look at it is levels of degeneration and they've been quantified in lots of different ways okay so uh, the, the basic classification is a kelgren lawrence classification kl grading on weight bearing x-rays okay and that's a very good way to define where you are in that particular patient's degenerate knee pathway now in the past and when i was first started training uh, not that much um, consideration was given to where about that patient is in that pathway. The treatment pathway would be, right, you've got arthritis, okay, we're not going to do a knee replacement just yet, uh, we're going to give you some steroids, okay? And so there was, there was no bracing, there was no emphasis on uh, muscle bulk, uh, proprioception, strength, range of movement, so we were well behind in terms of approaching it with a rehab point of view. Is basically, here's, uh, here's an injection into your joint. 